Good to be here tonight. Uh, again, my name is Mark Orphan. Uh, I was here last week to share with you, and I want to again about the missions uh, week that is coming up starting one week from tonight, uh, Wednesday night, March 5th through Wednesday night, March 12th. Uh, next Wednesday night, the format will be the same, the same as, as it always is, same time, same kids programming. But we will have uh, here in the South Auditorium three uh, guests with us who are, uh, who are being sent out from Timberline Church. Actually, we're going to Skype one of them in. George Cisneros is in Guatemala, and the other two will be with us. And we refer to them as, as Timberline ambassadors in the sense that they are missionaries, but they're being sent out. They were part of our congregation and have God is in, in response to God's call in their life are going out. So that is next uh, that is next Wednesday night. Then there are, and there will be flyers. There's, there'll be a table in the back with tickets and flyers. So all the information will be on these flyers. You can grab one on the way out tonight. But that begins uh, Missions Week. And something is happening every day of the week. Or on the weeknights, there are, uh, there are gatherings here at Timberline where we have pastors and or missionaries who represent our different church-to-church partnerships. And they will be here, some of them flying in from other countries to be with us and to share with us in more small group gatherings. So we want you to have that information. We'd love for you to be a part of at least one of those. And then we have March 8th and 9th, the weekend services, which will be be a, a missions focus. And then the following Wednesday night, March 12th, is a different time and a different format. And I want to make sure that you're aware of that. Six to eight o'clock in the main auditorium. It's our big missions annual mission celebration uh, event. We will have cultural missions, cultural experiences set up all in the building. I don't want to tell you too much about that, but but teams have been working on that for months and months. But it's from six to eight o'clock. Now, if you have children that are a part of the Wednesday night programming, Royal Rangers and, and Girls Club, that will still be going on, but there's an expanded missions children pro, pro program going on on the 12th, and so it will start from 6 and go all the way till 8, uh, and we just want you to be aware of that. So you'll check them in the same way that you always do, but there will be a missions theme uh, for their experience throughout the night as well, and then, and then the adult program will take place in the main auditorium. Man, that's a lot to explain. I hope you guys got all that. That's why we're talking about it three weeks in advance. And so I want you to be aware of that. That is a ticketed event on March 12th. And the re- it's only $2. It's not cost prohibitive. But we bring it up because we don't want you to show up and, and find that it has been sold out. And typically it does. In fact, I think over 300 tickets have been sold already. And so we want you to get ahead of the game and buy tickets tonight, uh, even on your way out, so that so that uh, you can uh, take a part of that on the 12th. Okay? Thanks for uh, letting us share that, and we look forward to having you be part of our Missions Week. I want to invite the ushers to come at this time, if they would, and if you'd bow your heads uh, with me, uh, let's thank God for His, His uh, goodness to us. God, we are so grateful for Your generous provision in our lives, and so, God, in response, we give back to You tonight. And we pray that with these gifts, God, you would continue to extend your reach and your work through us, this church in this community and around the world. And we praise you for that in Jesus name. Amen. Amen. Let's hear it from Mark Orphan. I think we need to hear it for Orphan. It's just a, 
It's just a smattering of applause, Mark. My first experience, my earliest memory, is missions. When I was three years old, my, um, which would be the summer of 1945, I'll let you do the math, we were on the second ship out of New York Harbor for Europe after the close of World War II. My parents went as missionary educators to India, so my earliest memories are in a different place. My first school experience was in a different place than this. Um, there's a technical term for that when you're a kid raised in another culture, and it's a third culture kid. And it has to do with the combining of the two cultures, the, the original one and the one you go to, and, and you create this other one. But whenever I hear anything about going or telling the story or being light in a dark place, it always sort of fires my jets. So whatever you can do to participate in as much or as many of those times as you can, uh, that would be terrific. I am, uh, I am wrapping up the series on the parables. And um, it's a privilege to, to do that. I was, um, I was in the third grade in um, Southern California. My father stayed an extra year in India. My mother and my sister and I came home because we had been, we had had sickness. My sister had uh, rheumatic fever. My mother had struggled mightily early on in our time. I had had rickets and malaria, all kinds of stuff. And we came home. So we were here for a year by ourselves before my dad came back. And one fall day, my mom said, I'm going to take you to the Pomona State Fair, Pomona County Fair in Southern California. I was excited. I went to the Pomona County Fair and, and uh, saw the pigs and the cows and that they had programs and it was cool. And my mom bought me an ice cream bar. Somewhere between the pigs and the buying of the ice cream bar, I wandered off, apparently. My sister and my mom went someplace, and I found myself as an eight-year-old in this huge pavilion with the smell of cows and, and hundreds and hundreds of people, and I was lost. There was hardly any worse feeling than lost. I don't know how long it was. It couldn't have been more than 10 or 15 minutes. All I know is that a big cop was with me and they'd made an announcement and my ice cream was running off my elbow. Because I really like ice cream, but compared to liking my mother, it's not close. I don't know if you've ever been lost. But if you ever have been, I mean by yourself lost. I don't mean just lost your way in a car and can't get directions. I mean lost, lost. There is no worse feeling. If you are a parent and your child is lost, 
it's the closest thing to a panic attack one will ever have. It's horrific when you list quite apart from abductions, which are way too many these days. But, but when you hear on the TV or on the radio, this child has wandered off. We don't know where he or she is. It's a terrible feeling and a terrible truth. Of all the parables and all the stories in the Gospels, there is no story that focuses what God is about with humans more than the story of what is called the, the prodigal son. It's probably more aptly named the story of the gracious father or the story of the two sons. But prodigal is an interesting word. It's, it's the word from which we get prodigious, which means a lot of. What happened with the prodigal son is that he took a lot of money and he squandered it a lot and lost it all. That's where prodigal comes from. But Jesus in Luke the 15th chapter, if you have your Bibles, Luke the 15th chapter has a trilogy of stories. The first and second are, have to do with the lost sheep and the lost coin. Those are different than the lost son. Because sheep just biologically wander off. They just, they're not the smartest creatures in the world, I'm told. But a sheep wanders off. And that story is fascinating because the shepherd goes after the one sheep. Years ago, I have a friend who's an archaeologist who's been on many digs in, in, uh, in the Middle East. And he was talking to an Arab shepherd one day, and he said to him, when it's raining in the dark, how do you know which sheep is which? And it was a very interesting response. He said, when they come in, when I bring them in, I feel their heads. I can tell by the shape of the head which sheep it is. In this case, the sheep wandered off, the one little sheep wandered off and gets lost, and Jesus uses that as an illustration. The second is that coins don't wander off. Some of you are saying, you haven't seen some of my coins. But the fact is, it's inanimate. I lose a coin. I misplace it, it rolls under the couch, whatever. But none of the three stories captures the heart of what God is about more than the story of the gracious Father. And it starts in Luke, the 11th chapter. And please understand who the audience is. Jesus is talking, well, he's talking to sinners. He's talking to people who get what it's like to be lost. So here's the story, and you can see it on the screen. And it reads like this. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. How many of you know this story? You've heard this story before. You, I mean, you say, well, absolutely I know that story. That's just a 
That's sort of the quintessential story. From a, from a from an English major story, I didn't know this, but our friend who sings up here, she's an English teacher. I love that. But from an English perspective, this is one of the best short stories ever written. It's got drama, it's got intrigue, it's got irony, it's got tension, it's got familial disputes, it's got money, it's got, I mean, it's got all these pieces. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together, all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth. He lived prodigiously in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to a census, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So all the, he's rehearsed this in his mind, so now he blurts it out. I love the response. Don't you love this response? But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it, the special calf. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him, What's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you. So this is a long time. We don't know how long it is, but it's, but it's more than a year. It's more than a couple of years, apparently. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this, this son of yours, listen to how he says it, when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, but this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I mean, you can, you can feel the sarcasm dripping in his voice. You can hear the edge, the anger, and, and, the, and the maybe even rage. My son, the father, said, You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Great art has been created around biblical themes. You can find masterpieces in the Louvre in Paris about all kinds of biblical themes. But there perhaps is no more poignant picture than the one that this Dutch um, painter by the name of Rembrandt did. 
It'll be on the screen here. Here is the boy. Looks like one sandal on, one sandal off. His father, whose hands are there for blessing in the past, it's almost as though they're blessing him again. I'm just going to ask to leave that picture up just for a few moments. And I'll, I'll go ahead and speak for a few moments. This third parable of Luke 15 is more elaborate treatment of the seeking of sinners theme that we have here. And the story really gives more attention to the father, the old man there, than the son. Even when the older son reacts to him, the attention is given to the father. Jesus, in talking to the tax collectors and sinners, no doubt with other more religious types listening in, is making a case, if you will, a statement about this forgiving father. It's interesting because this parable is unique to Luke. It's not reported in any of the other Gospels. It's that you don't find it in Matthew, Mark, or Matthew, Mark, or John. You find it just in Luke. The father, obviously, is a picture of God. The prodigal symbolizes any of us who is lost, any one of us who is lost. The tax collectors and sinners represent, I think, it's, it's almost allegory, represent the elder brother's attitudes saying, what are we talking about here? Haven't we obeyed the law? I've, I've not disobeyed anything. I've, I'm just... So, so you have this, this trilogy of characters, if you will, these pictures. This elder brother represents the self-righteous, self-righteous leadership, the Pharisees, the scribes, all of these people who spend their lives getting it right and thinking that gets them in. They don't see the gracious heart of the Father. They don't realize they have it all already. That's who they are. This, This particular story is one of the more poignant human stories that you find in all of the Gospels because the whole parent child thing, the whole sibling rivalry thing, many of us get that. Many of us understand that there are tensions between parents and children. Many of us, especially if you grew up with, with siblings, get the rivalry thing. I have one sister who's three and a half years older than I, who thought she was my boss. I, like, I don't get it. We used to have horrific fights when she was... Well, when, when, when we were in the teen years, especially when I was a young teen, and, and she was bigger than I was until I got to about 13. And then I could take her down. And my parents would be off doing some godly things, and it would be hellish at our house. I just have to say that. I, I still have scars. I mean, she had unbelievable nails. And we talk about it now, and we're good. But it took decades. No, it didn't. It, but we, we all get sibling rivalry, so we get the feel of this story. The major issue is what happens when there's repentance before God and God's willingness to forgive. Those are two tracks 
that this story runs on. And this, this story is sort of Jesus' uh, final explanation or major explanation of the good news in the face of criticism that he's receiving from people who are saying, you're hanging out with the wrong people. You're hanging out with sinners. And he tells the story in essence saying, let me tell you about sinners. Let me, let me explain to you about sinners. This opens with, as you've already read and heard, with the younger son's request to have his share of the estate. Now, several of the th- comments or thoughts that I'm going to present now come from a Presbyterian uh, theologian, pastor, missionary by the name of Kenneth Bailey. We have our friend Doug Clark here. He and his wife spent 39 years in the Middle East and... Um, it was interesting because I was talking to Kent when we were, or to Brent when we were talking about this series, and I say, who are you using as resource for, for how you're teaching on the parables? And he named, uh, or I named a couple of folks in, in some books, because none of us who stands here knows everything about everything, and sometimes we don't feel like we know anything about anything. But, but I named a couple of folks, and then he said... Have you heard of Kenneth Bailey? And I said, you know, I have, but I haven't read him or seen him or anything. He said he has this marvelous, um, these marvelous books and teachings because he grew up in the Middle East of seeing the text through the eyes of a Middle Easterner. Well, it wasn't long after that we were sitting with our friends, the Clarks, and I said, we're going to do these parables. And he said, have you ever heard of Kenneth Bailey? Well, Kenneth Bailey is this marvelous... Presbyterian pastor, scholar, who explains things in the light of a Middle Eastern culture in a a way that is more profound than sort of the ordinary textbooks, in part because he just didn't read about it. He grew up in it. And uh, so a few of these thoughts come from him, not all, but a few of them. The, The boy who asked for his estate is probably, because he's single, is probably still in his teens, maybe late teens. And when he asks for his inheritance, the word that is used is life in the original text. And what he's asking for is his portion of what his father's life will leave him. If his father lives out his life, then you get the estate. And... Uh, in a Jewish context, the younger brother would get a smaller portion than the elder brother. The elder brother, according to Deuteronomy 21, would receive uh, two shares, and the others would get one share. So in this case, it would be two-thirds going to the elder brother and one-third going to the younger brother. And in Jewish thinking, a father should not divide his estate uh, too early, because when you do that, according to some thinking, you give the children power over the parents, if you will. Nevertheless, what happens here is that the father, unbelievably really, and, and this isn't lost on the listeners, this would never happen. This would never happen in that culture in that day. The father grants the son's request. Kenneth Bailey says it this way, this is in effect... The son saying, the younger son saying to his dad, Dad, why don't you drop dead? And at that point, the father is supposed to backhand him with his left hand and send him out of the house. 
And he doesn't. He says, I want my part of your life. And the Father says, okay. If I'm the listener, if I'm, if I'm the guy listening to this story, all of a sudden I'm hooked because this is not how the story is supposed to go. This is, this is not the plot. Any, anybody, any self-respecting Jewish person knows that's not the plot. But what it does is it pictures the Father, Father God, letting the sinner go his own way. We are not automatons. We are not robots. We are not coins that somehow got lost under the couch. We are, in fact, people of choice, and we can choose for God or against God. Or as someone has aptly put it, the life has, our lives have two options. I can say to God, have it your way. Or he can say to me, both, have it your way. In this case, the son said, I want to have it my way. And the father says, okay. Having divided the living or the property between the two sons, the father watches his younger son depart. And he goes off to lose all of it in what is described as wild living. The text actually says that he scatters his resources. He squanders. I mean, this is what you call the big spender. The big spender ends up the big loser and the lost. But the difference between spending and investing is that investing gives you a return on your investment. A spender just fritters, just does stuff that doesn't come. There's no coming back to him or to her. And in this case, he takes his father's life, a third of his father's life, and throws it to the four winds. Following financial failure comes a natural disaster. When you run out of money, all kinds of things happen. In this case, it's not just him running out of money. There's a famine in the land, and he's in need. So he goes to find a job, and he ends up feeding pigs. And you, of course, know where this is going. There would be nothing worse for a young Jewish man than to find himself in a foreign land slopping hogs. That's, that's the ultimate picture of disgrace and loss and um, uh, disparity between what I had and where I ended up. So he's a Jewish boy working for a Gentile guide, feeding his pigs, and they're not feeding him. And so he is, he is there longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs are eating. It could be some kind of beans or kara uh, uh, beans, or it could be shells from the locust tree or bitter berries. could be a lot of different things. But no one has anything to offer him. And his, his thought process is, in his lost state, even these unclean animals have more to eat than I do. They, I'm lower than the pigs. I'm not just feeding the pigs. I'm lower than the pigs. So the son reflects on his condition. And he comes to this idea that to be outside of the family is to be utterly alone. 
Kenneth Bailey makes the point here is that oftentimes over the years when we've taught, uh, taught on this, we say, and he came to himself and headed home. I think I've probably said this, so I'll just confess that right here on tape. And he said, oftentimes we, we represent that as repentance, as the turnaround point. I'm going this way, and I turn around, and I'm going the other way. That's what repentance essentially means. His observation is this, that the phrase, and he came to himself, is only used one other place in Scripture. It's used in Acts when Peter is in prison. Some of you remember the story. And the angel comes and gets him out and takes him out on the street. He thinks it may be a dream. And he's out on the street, and then it says he comes to himself. And it means that he, he realizes the reality of his situation. That's what the phrase means. doesn't mean that he asks for forgiveness. doesn't mean any of that in this text. It just means that he, that he all of a sudden has a gut check about where he is. Jewish kid working for a Gentile in a foreign land, slopping hogs, and they have stuff to eat and I don't. And it says that he, he gets up trying to solve this. He thinks if he can give his father the money back, that's the issue. If I can solve this, which would be a standard approach, then all will be well. I can do this. I can pay the money back. I'll be okay. So he devises a plan of action. He's going to go confess his sin. Father, I've sinned against heaven, against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired hands. It, it, it expresses humility, but that's a plan. Sinners lost people like me. See, all of us get this story because we're all sinners. And if you don't think you are, come to me afterwards and we'll settle that. Okay? All have sinned and come short of God's ideal, His glory. The only thing I can rely on when I'm as lost as I am is the Father's mercy. We recognize we have failed and have no right to blessing. So the Son comes home. I've talked about this story maybe hundreds of times. This is the part I love best. That, that the Father apparently is watching I don't know whether every evening he went out and stood outside his little Palestinian home and looked down the road the direction from which his son had left. But one night he sees a familiar shape against the setting sun. This is Foth paraphrasing. This is Foth sort of imagining. He recognizes the gate. He recognizes the walk. He sees the boy coming. It's been years and this old man, I don't know how old he is, but he, he starts picking him up and laying him down. He start, he is, it says he is moved with compassion and he starts running toward his boy. Imagine in your mind a child that has been lost for years. And all of a sudden he or she shows up at the door My bet is, you may have this feeling, but my bet is you don't start screaming at him. Do you know how crazy you have made me by being gone? You, you may feel that, but that's not what you do. You grab him and you hug him and you cry and you say, you come in here and I want to kiss you and hit you. You know, you know. 
But it says he goes after him and he throws his arms around him. We have another picture that's a more modern picture that sort of captures this moment. That one. You see, the reason he ran was because he had compassion. There was another reason he ran, according to Ken Bailey and others that I've read, is that he didn't only just shame the family, he shamed the village. This is a clan culture. And the father needed to get to the boy before the villagers did. To protect him, to show him how he saw his status, because he's the most offended, if you will, according to culture. But he grabs him and he hugs him and the boy goes into his lines. What's, what's interesting, the language here is that the father literally drapes himself upon his son's neck. He realizes that the real problem is not the money. The father gets this. The real problem isn't the money. The real problem is the broken relationship. And at this point, the son accepts responsibility, confesses, and starts his liturgy, or his litany, if you will. He, he says, okay, I, you know, I just want to be a slave. And, and the father stops him. And he says, bring the robe, bring the sandals to show he's not a slave, bring the signet ring, if you will, that is the thing that when you do a legal document and you put the wax on it, you roll. That's the authority in your family. He gives it all back to him. I mean, I can get it why the elder brother's ticked, okay? I, I get that part, but that's a different issue. And it's as though the father, is, he's saying, I'll just, I'll just be a hired hand, I'll just do this. And the father says, you made the call once. You had your shot and you took it. I'm making the call now. And this is how it's going to be. You're going to be here, and it's going to be just like it was, and you're stuck with it. You're stuck with another third. You're stuck with all the cattle. You're stuck with me, and it's the best stuck you will ever be. I love it that the father interrupts him and says, you know, you're thinking right and coming back, you're thinking right in saying you've sinned against God and against me. Where you're not thinking right is what's going to happen as a result of that. And I come to Jesus with all of my junk. And I say, I'm going to try to do better. And he says, you can't. And I'm going to, I'm going to do this and that. And he says, you can't. And I say, why? He said, because I already did it. We can't do a do-over in this. I've already ransomed you. can't be ransomed twice. That's just how it is. The dad knows the real problem. And he calls for the best robe and the ring and the sandals and the fattened calf. It's a special animal. Fattened calf were prepared for special days like the Day of Atonement. And then they have a party. And this just isn't any party. This is a, this is a celebration because the Son has come from being destitute to being completely restored. And this is what God's grace does for the confessing sinner. There's this ironic part, this, this tense part at the end where the, where the elder brother comes in. 
and he's upset because he feels like he's played by the rules and he never even got a goat. And the father says, you got the whole thing. What are you talking about? You don't have a goat. And admittedly, at the end of the story, we're left hanging about the elder brother. He's just there. He's making judgments. You see, I think the elder brother is about the money. The father is about the boy. You can tell when you're thinking wrong, when it's not about restoring relationship. You can tell when you're thinking wrong, when you're, when you're more upset about the loss of some stuff than you are about having this whole person back. That's just how it is. And then they party. The celebration has to do with the fact that someone who is lost has been found. The celebration has to do with the fact that you were dead. As far as I knew, you were dead and you show up alive. I love the line that says God did not come to make bad men good. God came to make dead men live. He didn't come to make bad women good. He came to make good women or dead women live. This is a life-death celebration and all bets are off. And that's how it is. And that's how it works. And that's what this story is about. And if I'm, if I'm a tax collector who's all about money and I'm listening to this story and I understand that the father in the story could care less about the money, but he cares all about me. Somehow the Holy Spirit has got to be working in that. And the people who are all about control and getting it right and keeping it right, and I'll set the rules for what right is, they don't like this story. Because this story doesn't make any sense at all. It takes a logical world and turns it on its head and says, let me show you the unbelievable grace of a father who loves you and, and, and whom, no matter how far you go or how long you stay there, when you return, he throws a party. In our culture, in this time and place, we would call that the Lord's table. And that's what we're going to do. Our ushers are going to pass out communion elements to you. And in the New Testament, there are uh, two cultures, really, that, um, that celebrate communion. You have Jerusalem, which is a more sober... It's, these are the Hebrews. They're serious about religious things. And it's, it's a more sober event. The Corinthians, on the other hand, these, these people in a far country who've been redeemed, they party and they get a little out of hand. So, so Paul has to kind of correct him. But we understand that the solemnity of the moment has to do with this unbelievable thing that happened. I was lost and now I'm found. I was dead and now I'm alive. But the celebrative part is thank God. Thank God that I'm not alone. Thank God I'm with you. Thank God that, that you 
who have waited so long for me to come back aren't smacking me. You're kissing me. And we're celebrating. As the elements are served to you, go ahead and serve the elements if you would. Let me tell you one quick anecdote. Some of you have heard me tell the story about my friend Charlie White. Charlie White was chief of staff to a very powerful congressman in Washington, D.C., and our daughter Jenny worked for that congressman. Charlie hired her. Charlie was in his early 60s. He was a ramrod straight, white-haired uncle of a man whose previous job, his previous career was as a Navy submarine captain. And then he became chief of staff, and for 16 years he had been chief of staff, and chiefs of staff run Capitol Hill. Long story short, Charlie would travel the world with this congressman. That congressman, by the way, is retiring this year, at the end of this year, after 34 years in the United States Congress. Great heart for human rights, great heart for religious freedoms. And Charlie and the congressman would travel the world to peoples that were downtrodden and oppressed. And they'd come back and try to get our country engaged to help them. The congressman was a great Jesus lover followed the Lord with his whole heart. And Charlie loved the congressman, still does, loved the congressman, but he just didn't get the Jesus part. One day they were in Sierra Leone, and Charlie felt a pain in his hip, came home, went to Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, and found out that he had a virulent form of cancer that they probably couldn't stop. He needed to get a hip replacement, and uh, so he was at home. Ten days out from a hip replacement. Our daughter Jenny had resigned from their office because she was going to go with a group called World Vision to West Africa. She was leaving on a Monday and she said, Dad, could we go see Charlie before I leave? I said, yeah. So we went to see Charlie. We walked in. We were just going to stay 10, 15 minutes because he was in some pain. And uh, we ended up staying two hours because Charlie wanted to talk about God. At the end of the time, we had a prayer. Jenny hugged him, said she loved him, vice versa. So we walked out. I said, Charlie, could I come back and see you in a few days? He said, be great. Put Jenny on an Air France flight to Paris and on to Mauritania the next night. And on the following Friday, I went back to see Charlie. When I walked in, the first thing he said to me was, I don't think I can do this thing without God, Dick. I said, well, I'm with you. He said, what do you think I should do? I said, why don't you give your whole life to him? He said, okay. I just, I just have one question. I said, what's that? He said, I, I haven't thought about God in 64 years. If I come to him now, when I could be checking out, as he put it, isn't he going to be mad? I said, Charlie, if you had a child, an adult child, from whom you were estranged, who had just wandered off and squandered the family fortune, soiled your name, all of that, and he or she showed up at your door and said, Dad, I just want to come home. I just, I just want to sit in front of the TV and eat popcorn and catch up. How would you feel about that, Charlie? He said, I'd love that. I'd say, and I said, and I was thinking of this story. I said, if you, as an imperfect earthly father, feels that, how much more would a totally gracious, loving, heavenly father feel that? He said, okay, what do I do? 
I said, well, why don't you just pray? He said, how do you do that? Because if you've never prayed, you don't know how to do that. I said, would you like me to help you? He said, yeah. I said, I'm going to say some phrases, and why don't you just follow me out loud? Because he says we can just confess like the guy in the story. He said, okay. I said, dear God, this is Charlie. He said, dear God, this is Charlie. And I'm just getting ready to say the next phrase, and Charlie takes off. He says, oh, God, I've screwed up my whole deal here, and I, you know, I haven't talked to you like for 60 years, and I just, I just need to really get this out. And, and he just poured his heart out for the next two minutes. Totally caught me off guard, and I was a little freaked because I had a good prayer ready. You know, Don't you hate it when a guy just tells the truth and just pours his heart out there? And then he just stopped. Like he didn't even say amen. And we all know it doesn't work if you don't say amen. And he sat back in his chair, and he looked at me, and he said, okay, now what? And all of a sudden, he's a Navy sub-captain ready for the mission. Charlie lived six months after that day. And when he went home, it was a grand celebration because the lost had been found. He was dead, and now he was really alive. And that's how it is. As you take the elements tonight in your hands, would you stand with me? this grand celebration in this homecoming in this kill the fatted calf moment and let's party Jesus says this is my body you were utterly alone and when you came to me I gave you a family that stretches around the world and stretches back for thousands of years not just to Jesus but to those who trusted God and and it went on their credit account, it says in Hebrews. It's a huge family you get to be a part of when you've been out slopping hogs and screwed up everything and you come home. And, that's... and so he said, when you take this, it's a new covenant. And, and this is my body of which you get to be a part. Let's in our hearts thank the Lord for this family of which we are a part as we take the bread. And then he breaks out the cup and he passes it to his disciples and he says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Life is in the blood. If you've ever been in a hospital and seen somebody get a, life tra- a, a blood transfusion and the color comes to their cheeks, you know instantly there's life in that blood. It oxygenates every cell in your body. And when you step into the this crimson stream as the songwriter says and it washes away all the toxins in your life and it brings you nutrients and life and dimension and richness there's nothing in the world like that he says this is a covenant and the covenant is this I'm the king I set the terms I'll pay it all And your option is to take it or leave it. You can't change the terms. You can take it or leave it. If you take it, the whole estate is yours forever. He said, all of you take and drink it. Let's drink together.
thank you, Lord Jesus. Let's just thank Him for a moment. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your life. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for your people. Thank you that we came home and you simply looked at us and said, I have been waiting so long to see you. Come right here and let me hold you. And then we're going to party. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for making that possible. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As you leave tonight, just a thought for reflection. Where do you find yourself in the story of the gracious Father? Who are you? Are you the tax guy listening? Are you the dad? Are you the elder brother? The boy? Some of you say, I sort of feel like the fatted calf sometimes. You know, I got caught in the squeeze here. But, I, you know, I'm, uh, but why do you see yourself in that place in the story? We have, we have some cookies. It's still party time. We got some cookies and stuff and some coffee back there. Please enjoy each other and that. And at 8 o'clock, if you have children in the program, please go get them. God bless you. Next week and the next three weeks, it's missions. You talk about party. That would be the thing to come to. God bless you.